difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson is not here this week, but has been spotted in the wilds of Bolivia. <laughs> uh, here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're contemplating how much dynamite we need to get into one of those newfangled safes. Scott? Got it figured out yet? I'm thinking just a little more. A little more it is then. Uh, while you're at it, can you tell us what film we'll be covering this week? Well, for our next two episodes, we'll be looking at films from opposite ends of Robert Redford's career, but united by more than just their star. The first is the first of two team-ups between Redford and Paul Newman, both in films directed by George Roy Hill in which they played partners in crime. We might get to the 1973 film The Sting one of these days, but today we'll be discussing 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, in which Redford plays the Sundance Kid, the right-hand man to Butch Cassidy, head of the -the hole-in-the-wall gang. A man of few words, in contrast to Newman's Cassidy, he rides alongside his partner in the waning days of the Old West. Scripted by William Goldman, it's a lighthearted film with a deep strain of melancholy, a tale of men who've come to realize they're running out of time. Then, next week, we'll discuss David Lowry's new movie, The Old Man and the Gun, which may be Redford's final role, but even if it's not, it's a valedictory turn that works both as its own cat and mouse crime story and a summation of Redford's career. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Think there's enough dynamite there, Butch? Most of this is true, and all of it blazes with action. You've never met a pair like Butch and Sundance. Well, we're back in business, boys and girls. Outlaws with style, in a class all their own. You know, when I was a kid, I always thought I was going to grow up to be a hero. Don't tell me how to rob a bank. I know how to rob a bank. And anything you ask of me, I'll do. Except one thing, I won't watch you die. You just keep thinking, that's what you're good at. (laughs) An incredible pair of rugged adventurers, creating a living legend on two continents. But it's just one guy. Don't you get sick of being right all the time? They rob trains. Stop it. Looted banks. And one girl shared their love and larceny. Raindrops keep falling on my head. And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, nothing seems to fit. Those raindrops are falling on my head. What are you doing? Stealing your woman? Take her. Boy, you're a romantic bastard. I'll give you that. And then 
Mr. E.H. Harriman of the Union Pacific put the top lawmen in the West on their trail. They're very good. If he'd just pay me what he's spending to make me stop robbing him, I'd stop robbing him. They were outlaws, running out of time and out of space, and a changing world was closing in on them. From the American West to New York. To the dangerous new frontier of Bolivia. Bolivia. Well, he'll feel a lot better after he's robbed a couple of banks. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid opens with the note that most of what follows is true. And in some ways, it's hard to dispute that claim. We know more about Robert Leroy Parker and Harry Alonzo Longball, the outlaws known as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, than many of their contemporaries. But like many figures of the Old West, it's sometimes hard to sort fact from legend, especially when the ends of their lives have become one of the Old West's biggest legends. Did they really die in a gunfight in Bolivia, as is widely believed? Or did they live on, returning to America under aliases and dying peacefully years later? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid doesn't really have much interest in that aspect of the Butch and Sundance story, but it's happy to fill in other blanks by turning them into colorful characters who live as outlaws because they can't imagine any other way of life. Robbing banks and trains? That's just how they stay free. And they're gentlemen about it, too. They don't want to hurt anyone, and they try to make their robberies as pleasant as possible, even developing a kind of rapport with the poor suckers hired to stand in their way. They're good friends, too, whose personalities balance each other. Butch has the quips and the easy smile. Sundance keeps them grounded. And any friction tends to get reduced by Etta Place, played by Catherine Ross. She's Sundance's lover, but the film's most romantic moments belong to her and Butch, who looks at her longingly but seems to realize that taking it any further would upset the balance between the three of them and spoil things with Sundance. Make of that what you will. Make what you will of this, too. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a film about the ending of eras and the way the taming powers of institutions and civilization inevitably shut down freedoms opened up along the new frontiers, became the biggest hit of 1969. It hit theaters the same year as The Wild Bunch, which signaled the end of a certain type of traditional Western for which Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid serves as a kind of elegy. Its heroes are quote-unquote bad guys, but they're not bad guys, but their last hurrah doubles as a kind of last ride through the carefree West of old. Another hit that year was Easy Rider, whose We Blew It conclusion suggested that countercultural optimism had started to curdle as the decade ended, and, by coincidence or design, that spirit can be found in Hill's film as well. The future belonged to lousy bicycles. But for all its elegiac qualities, it's the hero's puckish romantic spirit that defines the film. Even as the walls start to close in, Sundance, and especially Butch, seem to be having the time of their lives, and though they briefly contemplate giving it all up, it's a pretty half-hearted effort. They do one thing well, rob others, and they know only one way of life. Whatever rightness or wrongness there might be to that gets swallowed up by their charm and Hill's presentation. Working with cinematographer Conrad Hall, he creates sweeping images of the American West as an unspoiled place where a person of a certain temperament could live on their own terms, even if it was always just one montage away from getting swept into the past. Kid, the next time I say let's go someplace like Bolivia, let's go someplace like Bolivia. Next time. Ready? No, we'll jump. Like hell we will. No, it'll be okay. If the water's deep enough, we don't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know? Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to? I have to, and I'm not gonna. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead. They're just gonna have to go back down the same way they come. Come on. Just one clear shot, that's all I want. Come on. Uh -uh. We got to! Get away from me. Why? I want to fight him. 
They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you? All right. I'll jump first. No. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim. So, everybody, what's your history with this film? This is not my first time watching it. Nor mine. No, mine. No, yes. <laughs> so it's an old favorite for all of us. I think this is probably my third time. Definitely my second time seeing it all the way through. I think third time. Um, I've, I've caught it on Turner Classic Movies, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, a little after it started once. But but uh, every time I'm like kind of taken aback by what an amiable, just fun movie it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it has this reputation as, a, you know, a, a classic. But even today, it feels like just very contemporary. And there's no sort of like barrier of prestige. Prestige. It's just a movie that you can like sink into very easily every time. I feel. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm a, I'm an American male and have seen the film, <laughs> uh, but pl- pl- you know, plenty of times on. Uh, so it's a movie for guys who like movies type of thing. Um, and uh, oh, sorry, should I see myself out then? No, you know what I'm saying. You, you, remember, you remember that whole thing, right? Yeah. It was a TNT or TBS that did movies who, who, uh, for guys right. who like. It was like embar- it was embarrassing, yeah. but also not entirely inaccurate. That's no, it true. was. I mean, it's but it, you're you're right in that it, it is. I don't know, how can you not like <laughs> Cassie Sundance Kid? What kind of person are you that does not like this well, movie? And, and I'd say a movie starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman at this particular stage in their career is also a movie for at least heterosexual women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really uh, they're handsome, and you know, there's no getting around their charisma. It's immense. Uh, but I will say, here's my take on Butch Cassidy, especially watching it this time. It's like one of those, basically, like one of those bands that like took all the cool stuff that was going on in the underground and mm-hmm. then made a huge pop hit out of it. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. not like it, this isn't the wild bunch. This isn't McCabe, Mrs. Miller. This isn't easy rider. It isn't Bonnie and Clyde. It isn't any of that stuff. It is a, it is a mainstream film that is playing around with those sort of same elements, but turning them into something that is, you know, a commercial juggernaut basically. Yeah. But I like those bands. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying, I'm saying, yeah, everyone likes those bands. That's, that, the point. that's my take on them. That's my take on Butch Cassidy though. I think it is, it is a very much a pop film. It is not, uh, it's true, but I also think it does have its own corner. I mean, it is, it is a closing of the West movie and it's not like it, it's alone in that corner, but it's, it is, that is a, a, you know, melancholy strain, like some sort of song, some sort of pop song, maybe raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> that sort of, you know, quirky and upbeat, but also kind of sad when you listen to it, you know? That's this movie. It's it's not just poppy and upbeat. There There is there is that element to it. I mean, it opens with that sort of the classic silent Western playing over the opening credits, and mm-hmm. you kind of get the feeling we're looking at the other bookend for that sort of movie. This is this sort of the end of, uh, end of the line for a certain type of lighthearted Western. Mm-hmm. It is, though, though, I mean, it also is trying to write this story and present the story in a way that makes it legend in that way that makes it the sepia toned thing that we can kind of get a distance from and appreciate and enjoy and not you know it does it's not a film of a tremendous grit you're not seeing you know you know gnats swirling over the corpse of an animal this is not that type of western that's for sure no yeah. In the dying of the Western, I mean, you know, the Wild Bunch connection. I guess they, they came out the same year, so there's, sure. they, so those ideas were uh, parallel to each other rather than overlapping. I mean, the, 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 of course, the one bit of trivia here is that uh, the Hole in the Wall gang is actually the Wild Bunch, right? Uh, so um, they, that had to be changed. But otherwise, I don't think there was like you know. And then of course, the end of both films ends ends in mm-hmm. the, this, this uh, huge gunfight in which our, our heroes uh, do not uh, live. Well, we don't know for sure. 
Yeah, <laughs> just because the entire Bolivian army was has to be <laughs> and, they're un- and they're unarmed and bleeding, it, it's possible. Uh, it's, I mean, Sundance is a really good shot. You know, yes. even without a gun, he's <laughs> yeah. quite effective. <laughs> um, I think it, I think it is that ending that like kind of always resets in my mind the fun and the quirkiness of what comes before, because it is just sort of an iconic, legendary in the sense of printing the legend, if you will, uh, ending that. Like I said, it just kind of obliterates the memory in my mind of, you know, Paul Newman riding a bicycle and, you know, the these like quirkier, I guess, poppy moments. But that at least me, like I'm not someone who has seen a lot of Westerns or like has a lot of affinity for the form. But like those sort of like more frivolous elements, I guess you might call them, like always just take me by surprise in, in the context of a Western, which is not a genre that I associate with like that kind of tone. Mm-hmm. But uh, it sounds like I, I, and I would not be surprised if I am missing a large swath of the genre that maybe does play in that tone. I a mean, little more. It, it's a sweeping statement, but not necessarily wrong. No, yeah. it's, it's probably true. I mean, it, it was, if you watch the making of doc, which you, mm-hmm. you did, uh, <laughs> the amount of humor and irreverence that William Bowman pumped into his script was a problem. Yeah. And yeah. had to be kind of cut back and i think it's because of that the expectation that the, the western can't quite be twisted up that much or you end up with just pure comedy that you're not you can't take seriously in any respect which i think is probably a pretty good note um this is not quite blazing saddles which would come later but <laughs> it's very very funny and right at the end too i mean the end the, there's lightness right at the right at the very end where, where he's talking he's talking about hey our next scheme is to go yeah. to australia, australia. And, <laughs> yeah and you still get some some nice banter before uh the before the inevitable happens yeah, they're so. cracking wise and making plans uh even in the face of death but that's that's also kind of the tragedy of these characters in a way it's it's all they know how to do you know they have they have no other life it's an impossible for them and, and they just kind of follow it till they, they run out of road so raindrops keep falling on my head we brought it up before um <laughs> I love that scene, <laughs> you know, and I, I feel like it's maybe in there because of the graduate, you know, and it's just sort of yeah. like, like this is, this is something that f- movies do now. I mean, there was a few years where, where it seemed like there was an obligatory montage scene, even play Misty for me has, has that really strange montage sequence set to the first time ever I saw your face, uh, which, I, which, I, which I love, <laughs> yeah. uh, but also is not something that would be in, in that sort of movie if trends were a little different, but I think it's great. And it's also kind of, you know, I realize how much my memory blurs because it takes me a moment to to remember. Oh wait, he she's with Sundance. She's not with. Yeah. They have the they have the most romantic scene in the movie. And they had the most romantic chemistry, which, which of course is also a, I think, kind of a the, that relationship is kind of a big knockoff of Jules and Jim, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, in a good again, in a good way, but it, but also that is a film that kind of ends in a fatalistic way, but mm-hmm. this one softens it up a little bit. And yeah. it, but I, as far as the scene goes, I mean, I did, I was thinking of the Graduate. Sure. For sure, during it. Um, and it, it's charming. And I, I think I do really love Burt Bacharach's contribution to this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, the, not only the song, but the, the score, which is so unusual and so bright and fun and kind of tone setting in an unusual and, and inviting way. Um, so I'm a lot more forgiving or uh, of it for that. And the fact that there, he's on a bicycle and the mm-hmm. bicycle represents what it represents. I was, I was, I'm with you on this. I don't know if it's the best moment in the movie, but, you know, it, it's tacky, but I kind of like it. No, I, I love it. And, and I was actually impressed by how much, how the stunts Newman's doing himself. Yeah, a lot of that. I mean, all, but the, all but the very last one. I think. I think yeah. so. That's the only one where you can't see his face. I mean, hearing you guys talk about it, I think maybe I'm coming around at it a little more than I than I did. I think, you know, just 
watching it on my own, I kind of maybe took a little more of the, uh, as Scott says, tacky. Uh, yeah, it's very <laughs> cheesy. It's super yeah, very cheesy. Yeah, yeah. No, you're all wrong. But, but like, don't get me wrong. Very enjoyable. I love watching Paul Newman on that bicycle. The song itself is like, it doesn't really do it for me, like <sighs> in this movie or just in general. And I realize that is heresy, but you know. Mm. Well, I think he, it also if you're a, you're a little younger than Scott, I mean, if you grew up with the song, you were probably even more sick of it, actually. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, even, you know, for me, it's a song that has so many associations outside of this movie and it has sort of like a reputation as easy listening or whatever you want to call it. So like, I recognize that like the whole anachronism thing is like part of the themes that this movie is playing with and like it's very purposeful but it is still always like very jarring for me even though it like is teased in the in the opening credits it's always like oh yeah this is this is that movie where <laughs> where that where that happens and it's a little strange but you know paul newman is a, a delight <laughs> so i'm just gonna watch him do these bicycle stunts until i'm gonna just scratch this off the karaoke list <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good it's a good one though it's it's a fine one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> uh, but, but, sim- but it's very similar. But but I had never thought of what you you mentioned about it being sort of a trend at this point in film to have these sort of like pop song you know montage interludes. Um, like it doesn't make me necessarily like it more, but it contextualizes it in a way that it feels maybe a little less jarring than it uh, does without that context. And it won the Oscar. I think it's probably more, it's the Oscars probably, never get it wrong, but it's probably one of the most, <laughs> one of the more famous yeah, Oscar-winning yeah. songs. I think it's a you know high, heavily recognized. Was it like a chart topper? Yeah, people... it was a big hit. Yeah, yeah. So it was a movie. It was the number one film of the year. Yeah, by actually a pretty good margin if, if the numbers I have are correct. Didn't Goldman like absolutely hate it? Goldman uh, hates everything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like he... Goldman hates all the presidents. <laughs> like he he and Hill like clashed about a lot of stuff in this movie. It sounds like, but uh, one anecdote I read made it sound pretty much like Hill put the song in the movie out of spite <laughs> because <laughs> Goldman didn't want it. Yeah, yeah. Just because Goldman so was so strongly opposed to it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, have you, I don't know if you did you have you read all those Goldman no, books, I Adventures should. in the Screen yeah. Trade, and I, I I read all through all that stuff when I was uh, an undergrad. It's, they're very entertaining books, but man, his he's such a cynical, sarcastic kind of sourpuss of a human being, uh, which makes him a, the perfect screenwriter. <laughs> he's like he's like the image of a disgruntled Hollywood screenwriter. And this is that is William Goldman. Well, that uh, is. well, how can you argue with the man who wrote The General's Daughter? I mean, come on. Is he writing that? Yeah, he does. Well, I mean, he's writing, you know, but again, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to his work. No, he writes a lot. But, but he wrote a lot. He wrote some pretty good scripts. I mean, All the President Spins a fine script. This is a fine script. Uh, Princess Bride is a really fine mm-hmm. script. Um, and I think, you know, stay on him. Movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride revealed to me anyway, a someone who knows a great deal about genre and about storytelling and who's willing to or inclined to comment on, on it as he's kind of going along. I mean, this feels like his conscious reinvention of the Western in his own sort of pop terms, uh, just as Princess Bride was his fractured fairy tale. Mm-hmm. He's very clever in that respect. Um, and he, he, he just flat out write good dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is yeah. fantastic in this film. You know where I see that too? Uh, Dreamcatcher. Did you write that Same one? instincts are all over Dreamcatcher. Oh, for goodness sakes. But that's, that, that, that movie is not indistinct. That is not, you know, that's not, no, that's no, not it's, like, it's, it's pretty that's not, that's not like colorless Stephen King adaptation. I mean, like there have been many, many generic Stephen King adaptations and Dreamcatcher, whatever you think of it is not one of them. No, it's true. 
So uh, take it easy on, on William Goldman, and, and those books are f- are fun. You know, you kind of get tired of the attitude uh, after a while, but they're they're fun to read. We touched on it before, but should we go a little deeper into the relationship between Butch Sundance and Etta? It's it's curious, isn't it? Yeah, and it, I mean, I wish the movie went deeper into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, well, actually, maybe I don't because I don't really think that like the people who made this movie would have been able to do something with that story that I find satisfactory today. Mm -hmm. Um, But like there is a very appealing nugget there that like you want to know more about these characters history and like that line between Butch and Etta, like, do you ever wonder, you know, what would happen if I, if we met first or if we'd been involved and he's like, we are involved. And there's just like this insinuation of a, sort of star-crossed lovers or, or ships passing in the night kind of thing but like the, the ships are still in each other's lives in a really complicated way and then the that uh, New York montage with those photographs of the, and it keeps going back and forth between Sundance and Etta dancing and Butch watching them and it just it feels so loaded but it's all just relegated to these little passing moments you know and and like that's that's fine you know like like I said like I don't know if like it's necessarily within this movie's purview to do more with that than it does but it doesn't stop me from wanting to know more than or, I get or with what it means that it's ultimately more about Butch and Sundance and mm-hmm. you know she can lead the picture and they still have a partnership you know whatever that yeah. means well I think to go back to the Jules and Jim comparison I mean Jules and Jim is a film about that love triangle so it can fo- it focuses so much more on, on the, the ebb and flow between those two men and the, the woman who's, who's, who's between them and in, in, in with both of them at different points and it, that is the subject of the film and it, it is fully explored here it, it it obviously is not fully explored because there's huge stretches of the film where she's not even in in it yeah. but i think this there's a similar kind of attitude at play in both in jules and jim and butch cassidy of just kind of a much more libertine and modern form of romance happening much more casual not as based in uh, traditional relationships and and you know jealousy and all of these other sort of feelings that would seem to come into play more in a situation like this mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that's these are people that can't live within the norms for for one reason or another i think that's what attract i mean she's a school teacher but i think that's what attracts her to this lifestyle as well as i don't i think she's bored I mean, she says as much when she decides mm-hmm. to go with them to, to Bolivia, you know, she all but says, I'm bored and <laughs> I like you guys, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and like that statement of hers or like her reasoning for coming with them, like it just kind of makes me mourn for the fact that we don't get more of Etta, you know, we, and again, not what the story is trying to do. It's, it's about these two guys and she only really exists in relation to them. And I mean, that is what it is. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of movies uh, that treat uh, its single female character that way um, from this era and many other eras. Mm-hmm. But and, and because like Etta is, you know, based on a real person, a real person who was apparently very different from the portrayal she receives in this film, it just creates that that desire on my part to just like get more than we get here but it's tempered with the realization that like if i did get more here it would not be what i wanted <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. it's a you know very kind of catch-22 reaction i have to, to etta that and and you know Catherine ross is awesome and yeah it's not it wasn't really in enough um she's still around doing stuff yeah did you, did you guys spot sam elliott in this movie He's in it, apparently. I didn't. I did not. No. And they're married. Apparently, that's where they... I don't know if that's where they met or not. That's where but, but, Catherine yeah. Ross and, and Sam Elliott. Yeah, they're married. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. She was in this yeah. movie, The Hero, and that was like the first thing she'd been in in a, in a oh little while. Gosh, that's really interesting. Yeah, trivia. Keith with the trivia. Always. Did you know also that Paul Newman and Robert Redford were friends in real life and were in another movie together? Um, <laughs> is, but not before that, this movie, right? They no. met on they met on this movie. Yeah, just, yeah. Got, got well, I was swimming. curious. This is not among the prepared questions, but I'll, I'm going to ask it to the group anything. No, anyway, go. it's just about the structure of the film. Um, strike it, you as unusual, or there ex- other other. Um, chunks of the film that you enjoy more than others because I mean you do get towards the beginning a lot of exciting robberies and you know they're, they're robbing banks they're robbing trains twice the second you know r- very funny entertaining mm-hmm. stuff but then there's a really long stretch yeah. of the film where they're just on the run who are those guys from so the super posse and you're what they're spending a lot of time trying to figure out who they are and wh- why they're able to catch keep up for so long and um, Ebert a, didn't like that part, right? That's his, tr- his, that his, 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 yeah, his his review as, uh, from the time I recall was very critical of mm. the unendingness. Uh, yeah, of, I, mean, of I, I, I like it, but it's weird, right? No, I like that because I, it's a movie that just will change speeds. You know, it mm-hmm. change shifts into different gears, and then once they're back with that, it's it's back in in the gear it was in before, or kind of a different gear too. <laughs> yeah, you know, trying, <laughs> all yeah. that all that stuff where they're trying where they're trying to learn Spanish is just yeah. <laughs> comic gold. Yeah, no, I'm. I, I I like the long chase sequence. It's got some of the best photography in it. Yeah. Con- Conrad mm-hmm. Hall, that that gorgeous day for night stuff he does in this movie. It's it's uh, and yeah. all the dust, yeah, all the particulate. Yeah, you know? no, it's great. Oh, yeah, he's he's an, it was an absolute master. Conrad Hall, one of the best ever. Yeah, it's a slow build up to that jumping off the cliff scene, which is which is great, and and uh, yeah. <laughs> which is a classic buddy movie moment, isn't it? Where they just yeah. say like, oh whatever, oh oh bleep. Well, is there a model for Each the buddy movie job, right? older than this one? I mean, I think, you know, if, if the modern buddy movie begins with 48 hours, this has got to be sort of an, this has got to be the, the ancestor of it, right? Well, no, I mean, the, Martin and Lewis. Oh, are, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, yeah. There's plenty, plenty, I think, of, of those types of pairings, but um, what if? But with yeah. action. With action? Yeah. Yeah. What if Steve <laughs> Martin and Jerry Lewis started in this movie? It might yeah, they, a little bit like that. Who would be the dead shot in that one? Like, there's no way it would be uh, Jerry Lewis. What would Jerry Lewis? <laughs> no. What role would Jerry Lewis no, play? No, he, he's he's uh, he talks more. He'd be the he'd be Butch. Yeah, yeah. Martin would be the cool customer who kind of hangs out in the background, and then yeah, I uh, know. <laughs> be, be a much different film than the one we saw. Much different film, yes. Yeah. Just picking up the thread of like the somewhat strange structure of of this movie, the sequence that always kind of throws me is the the New York montage, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I know after watching that making of documentary like was not originally intended to be this series of still photographs uh, that it, that it is. Uh, it was filmed on the set of Hello, Dolly, hmm. which was set in the same period. But this film was going to come out before Hello, Dolly, and they did not want the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> they did not want to reveal uh, the set in its entirety in a different movie. So the solution was to like kind of turn it into this montage of sepia photographs of moments that had yeah, been. Yeah, it was like it was like a uh, it was like an embedded preview of Hello, Dolly. Yeah, right. It was like, yeah. it was so it, 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 thus so, anticipating the era we're right. in now, where everything we're getting previews of movies. This we're is the, see in the this future. is the original like mid credits scene, but it's just like a mid movie. Do they exist in the same cinematic universe? Yeah, I mean, apparently, why not? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, it's an interesting solution to a problem, and. I think knowing that makes me more forgiving of it than I am in the movie itself where it, it throws me a little bit. It, but like 
outside of its connection to what's around it, it's a really like lovely little sequence. You, you know, like the the images that we see are like really well chosen. And like I mentioned, that kind of back and forth between the uh, shots of of Butch watching Sundance and at a dance, and like I, I really love that little moment, that little emotional beat, and it's all done via still photographs. And I think that's really interesting. Um, but it feels interesting like on its own not in terms of how it relates to everything around it yeah i think i think narratively speaking it would feel cleaner to skip it and just get to the bolivia part well but i don't know like i kind of like that we see this little jaunt through new york and them kind of like painting the town the same way like we get to see them painting the town in in bolivia you know and it's it's kind of I think an extension of that whole freedom theme, you know, and, and the the enjoyment of, again, living outside the expectations of society. Yeah, yeah, I think it is critical and it will be interesting. It'll be interesting later when we talk about the more recent uh, Robert Redford film about money and how money is used that, that we do get these glimpses of them really burning through it and mm-hmm. having the time of their lives doing it. That it's not just this compulsion to rob because it's fun, though they, though they certainly have fun. Uh, doing it but they i think there's a you know they like spending it like they like having a good time and uh, it, it's fun to be the, the, by their side when they're doing it guys i have some update information re Catherine uh, ross's uh private life uh she's been married five times <laughs> and if she met sam elliott on the set of this they did not marry till 1984 in 1969 she was married to conrad hall oh, oh. so there yeah. you go wow yeah Apparently, and again, this is coming from the making of documentary, which I'll just say, if you are an Amazon uh, Prime subscriber, uh, it is streaming free there, the 1970 making of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's about 50 minutes long, and it's it's quite good, and it's like kind of part director's commentary. Uh, George Hill like just talks throughout it, and there's little... Uh, bits from uh, Newman and Redford too, but um, in that like George Ray Hill like basically confesses that like he treated her really bad on on set, and there were like he, he was like there were a few awkward moments, and so knowing that uh, knowing about that relationship now uh, makes me wonder how how that may have factored into any sort of. Oh, that's right. I, I was I had read about that about yeah. how Conrad Hall had let her do some camera operation work on the set and. Oh. George Roy Hill wasn't happy about that or something. Hmm. What Something occurred or maybe they didn't get a shot they wanted or he didn't think it was appropriate or something. But I think that was that was what was behind um, the friction between Catherine Ross and, uh, and George Roy Hill, which was, I guess, significant enough to where Catherine Ross took a while to see the movie. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that aside, does, does uh, George Roy Hill kind of, does he get a little overlooked? Because, I mean, he's got a some pretty good movies in that filmography. Um, I like World of Henry Orient a lot. I like this one. This one's an all-timer. I World of Garp? Yeah, uh, World of Cordon Garp, The Sting, Slaughterhouse-Five. I've never seen Waldo Pepper. Um, or thoroughly, thoroughly Modern Millie. No, I but, can't imagine that that is uh, so so great. But Slapshot's great. Slapshot's great. You know? Slapshot, that is true. Slapshot mm-hmm. is great. Funny Farm's not that great. But but still. Uh, maybe, funny Farm's got one funny moment. Yeah, yeah well, you know. I, I enjoy thoroughly modern Millie quite a bit. Oh, you like the you like the film? <laughs> yeah, I've never I, I've never seen it. I mean, I mean, I I stand for Julie Andrews, so mm. you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. But yeah, rarely gets mentioned when you talk about 
you know, Alzheimer's. No, just, I guess not. I mean, he's a commercial filmmaker. I guess people didn't see him on the as on the cutting edge anything, which is you know maybe not fair, but that's the way things tend to shake down. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, we're, well, the revival starts here, right? Yeah. He's the <laughs> he's the pop guy. He's the guy who's taking taking all the cool underground stuff and making uh, making hits out of it. He's a pioneer with profanity and, and slap shot, though, right? I mean, that's that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. Well, give me give me an analogy. I'm trying. I'm 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 feeding this analogy, thinking that you're going to give me a, a, a music. Uh, a band that's yeah. a, that does all that. All right, so it takes all the underground stuff, and and I mean, I, I, I Blondie, I think would be would be one. I mean, it's sort of yeah. a CBGB denizen, no style of their own, but just sort of like refining, you know, reggae and and disco and punk for their own uses and making it really uh, fun and commercial, but without losing the artistry of it. I think, yeah, he's he's the Blondie of of, uh, of, uh, of filmmaking, right? Okay. Am I right? Sure, let's roll okay. with it. All right. Well, we've. I, the last thing I have here is let's. How do we? You know, how does the performance fit into the rest of Redford's career? I think we're going to get to that next episode. Any, any like last thoughts on uh, on uh, Butch casting the Sundance Kid? Well, I mean, I don't think we've really talked enough about both Redford and Newman's yeah. performances that's outside true. of just like noting they're very charismatic and yeah, that's and, true. They, and they are, but there's and like, very different. Yeah, exactly. There's there's like a difference in that charisma. It, there's a difference of both in the characters like how the characters are written and in how the two men uh, portray the characters, you know, that, uh, but are, both are, I'd say equally charismatic, which is, I think speaks to the individuality of performance or whatever that kind of creates movie stars. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'd be really curious to see if the script was altered in some way to, to accommodate that dynamic of Newman being as being the chattier of the two. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it's probably these are characters they're playing, et cetera, but it so suits those right. actors. I mean, you th- that's what you think of when you think of Redford and, and Newman, you think of Newman as, as somebody who can talk his way out of trouble, who's very clever and very verbal, who's got a, a lot of just, he's very gregarious and charming and, and Redford is, is being quiet, uh, you know, yeah. quiet and just in, in somebody who's so, magnetic that he just doesn't need to step on the gas at all in order to make his presence felt uh, yeah I, i've been watching a lot of redford movies lately for a piece i wrote for vulture for a couple of pieces i wrote for vulture but I, I wrote one about his crime films and i've watched some of his spy movies or something else i was writing and, and i it's it's really just he never overexerts himself he never tries too hard he never leans into the performance he it's it's very he's just so good at making understatement his understated performance is heard and and register on the screen i mean there's i don't know is i don't even know exactly what it is he just got it he's got that thing that movie stars have yeah you just wonder is that acting what i like is he a good actor you know, that's, that's always the question that i ask yeah. with redford because it's like those performances all seem Right, but it, but he isn't doing a whole lot. No, but but yeah, but he's doing he's not doing a whole lot very well. I think that's that's the trick. Well, and we will get into this next week, I'm sure. But he's also like looking at this movie compared to Old Man the Gun. He's not doing a lot in very different ways. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like and, and again, like that is maybe like charisma or whatever you want to call it. But I think like the perception that like it's easy or he's not exerting himself is especially hard while creating like very different tones of, among two very similar in in a lot of ways characters i think is probably evidence that he is doing something it's just like so well honed that it's not necessarily something we can recognize or describe i think i mean, i think it becomes um not surprising to learn that they're friends off screen mm-hmm. i mean they're, they're they're just there's something so 
natural and unpracticed about that chemistry. It's just, it's hard to imagine unless, the, you know, I mean, obviously actors can be ex- exceptionally good and, and two strangers can, can be on screen together and make it seem like they've known each other for years. But I don't know. I mean, I think, I think they give you that impression throughout the film. It just, they, they work so, so well together. And they are beautiful to watch. I mean, they, they, they just look so incredible. Like, like I mean, like I mean, like Redford, almost Redford, especially that that mustache and the whole the mustache the works, man. It just, oh. man. Yeah, and, and Conrad <laughs> Hall also, you know, photographs the hell out of both of them. And geez. oh, I thought I thought you were saying like I don't really know what Conrad Hall looked like at this point in time, but <laughs> <laughs> he was everybody was handsome. Yeah, was, yeah it was just uh, I'm sure. Conrad Hall could light himself to look pretty awesome. <laughs> he he landed Catherine Ross. You know, this is not, this is yeah. not. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had he had some had to have something going on there. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like we're segueing to just talking about Robert Redford. And if you enjoyed Robert Redford talk, I think our next episode is going to be filled with Robert Redford talk. Um, so we'll save some of it for then. Uh, we'll talk much more about Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid uh, as well, in conjunction with the Old Man and the Gun next week. But for now, we'll take a break and be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got quite a bit of feedback for our Black Klansman slash Malcolm X pairing. Scott, want to start us off? Uh, Sure. Marion writes, have you ever considered having a guest on your show? I asked because listening to your recent Malcolm X episode, it struck me how much fuller and more culturally accurate slash appropriate it would have been for you to have a black guest on to talk about the mixed anticipation and ultimate reception of the film. For instance, the black community wasn't worried about Denzel Washington being too pretty or lightweight for the role. He had been nominated for two Oscars and won one, both for roles pretty important to us. Cry Freedom's Stephen Biko and Glory's Private Trip. Plus, Malcolm X is rather pretty himself. There was a concern, however, that he was too dark-skinned. Malcolm X's mother was mixed, and his light skin played a huge role in his self-conception and his place in the community. Having a darker-skinned actor in that role necessarily forecloses that aspect of his life in the movie. It also would have been great to have someone who felt comfortable talking about the racial politics of the Oscars. You all wrote Denzel's loss off as primarily about Al Pacino's victory lap and only briefly mentioned the racism and conservatism that is always at play with black actors' performances. There's no way they were going to award Malcolm X for anything. The fact that it got only two nominations and one was for costume design is incredibly telling. I'm a huge fan of your show and have been from day one. But in this case, listening to four white people talk about one of the most important black movies of all time was just not the move. <laughs> yeah, we've been thinking about this letter a lot since we got it. Oh, and, and this and is not the first time we have thought about this either. No, this, no. this came up basically any time we are discussing a movie that deals with black identity or any non-white identity. You know, we are kind of left to question our our format and the right. limitations thereof. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hardwired into how we set up the show, which is we are four longtime friends and co-workers and we're all white, but we haven't had any guests because it's been our show. And that runs into some problems for me. And, and this, is a, this points out a lot of 
really good ones. And it's something that we struggle with. There are options that aren't great, like not dealing with movies about the black experience, which we don't want to do. And it's a case where we don't want to just bring in a guest as sort of a black expert and then shuffle them off and never hear from them unless we're doing another black movie, which isn't, it's not a great look either. But yeah, this is, you're absolutely right. You got us uh, and, <laughs> and, and you're not wrong. And so bringing in guests is actually something we have been talking about more and more because, I mean, you know, you might have noticed Tasha has been here for a few weeks and it's not because we don't like Tasha and we don't want her to be here. Um, it's because she's very busy. We're all very busy, increasingly busy. Um, I, you know, my schedule's gotten more unpredictable since I went freelance, and you know, we're and there's other things going on in our lives. Uh, so, you know, bringing in guests might be something that you see more of in the future, and it's probably fine. It's for, we might be a little too tight with our format. Uh, and, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'll just like as the person who produces this podcast too and and like i say this not as an excuse but just sort of an explanation and why we've been a little slow to figure out how to bring in guests of any background um our setup both in terms of getting four people together to record live is very difficult with the four of us already and adding another person that mix just our actual recording setup is not set up for like remote guests which is something i am looking into figuring out because it would open up a lot to us and not limit us to people who are here in chicago with us although there are a lot of great critics here in chicago that we have talked about trying to get them on the show. And as Keith said, we're probably going to be moving in that direction. It's just sort of a matter of figuring it out logistically. But uh, I'm glad Marion wrote in uh, to point this out and kind of allow us to air that background discussion that we've been having for for a long time. And, And I'm also glad for the points this letter makes specifically about Malcolm X, both in terms of the choice to cast Enzo Washington and its performance at the Oscars, which is actually probably something we should have made more of a point do we, do to. We, do we not? I, I touched on realize, it. We touched on it, but it was, it was you know... We, so, we just my on. whole thing about... We, we, we got a little caught up in hoo jokes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think if you look at... I mean, Denzel had won the Oscar for Glory, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, he was Steve Biko. Um, the thing... My whole theory on a, a lot of that is I, I think that the only way that traditionally Oscars have really embraced films about race is if there are white characters who will play a, an important role in the film in terms of assisting or advancing or being a part of a black character's story, you know, and that that's not the case with, with Malcolm X. So it's in, I, I mean, that's my theory. I don't know if, if, uh, if I'm tweeting well here. That was true in 1992 and probably true now too. Well, yeah, I, for sure. Well, Oh, I mean, oh, until moonlight, moonlight, right? moonlight, moonlight. <laughs> moon, moonlight fixed everything. Yeah, yeah correct. Moonlight fixed everything. <laughs> it, 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 but it was, it did something. It did something, and yeah. it would, it would be interesting. The long overdue effort to try to change the the um, complexion of the academy is, you know, and maybe, maybe things change a little bit. But we really appreciate this letter, and it's something yeah. that we've been thinking about. And, and I think someone someone once said, if you one person writes you a letter about something a hundred people are thinking of it, thinking it. So uh, <laughs> yeah. consider definitely consider it something that's on our mind. Yep. We hear you.
We also received some feedback about the use of real footage from Charlottesville and Black Klansmen. Genevieve, would you like to read that? I would. Uh, Matthew writes, regarding your discussion of the ending of Black Klansmen, I see the case for including the footage of Charlottesville at the end, but for me anyway, the abrupt shift from fiction to documentary felt both forced and unnecessary. Leo Reddy does a masterful job weaving contemporary political commentary into a well-executed 70s buddy cop riff, such as including Klan talking points that mirror Donald Trump's rhetoric. I don't think he needed to include the footage, or at the very least as much as he did, to make his point. Better to let the audience make the connections themselves than to hit them over the head with your thesis. That's one reason I enjoyed Sorry to Bother You and Get Out, both of which make similarly profound statements about the black experience in 21st century America without so abruptly taking the viewer out of the film, more than Lee's effort. I, I don't know. It, it worked It worked for me. Uh, and I think I can see the objection to springing that the particularly graphic footage on unsuspecting viewers at that point. I can see cringing at that. But I think the move to contemporary the you know connecting the to the contemporary um footage works really well i mean i i, I really love the end of this movie and and we actually we ran into the whole like springing graphic violence of real life uh footage on people and when we did fahrenheit on 11 9 last week yeah. too yeah it actually yeah that used the exact same footage mm-hmm. i mean i was a little more unsure about that uh, the use of that footage in Black Klansmen. And now that we're a month or so away from it, I think I still am, but it's not, it doesn't really have to do with the, like the violence uh, of it so much as the way that it just kind of, it doesn't erase everything that comes before, but it just overwhelms everything that comes before. And I think that is maybe kind of what Matthew is is getting at here. Like the the film does a lot of interesting things within its own story in terms of relating this period story to the modern day. And it does it not quite as obviously or as like in your face as it as it gets in, in those final moments when it brings in the Charlottesville footage. And there's definitely something to be said for that approach of being very like kind of hitting you over the head with this can't look away moment and then leaving you with that and like it is a moment that stays with you after you leave the film whether it serves to undermine or overwhelm everything that came before it you know that is maybe more of a a personal thing but i can certainly see feeling that way i I feel that way a little bit about it in black Klansmen. i mean i i said at the time that i i that it's I loved it and it's my favorite thing in the movie yeah. so it's very hard for me to I, I think I can understand the point that's being made here and I, and I was surprised that we were as on board with it as we were you have some yeah. reservations but I believe Tasha and, the, and Keith and I were pretty enthused about the ending which but the ending has been quite polarizing so Matthew is not not alone in thinking that this is a poor choice on on Spike Lee's part um, for me though I think it's it's just an imperative of Spike Lee's and it has been for a while to, to he he himself is making a lot of fiction films and documentary films and then also making fiction films that are um, trying to capture a moment in time if if that's going to be uh, if that's something that is that fits into his film he's going to do it um, and uh, that's an instinct I've always admired in his work and I think it, it really makes them into a very strong statement about the, the, the era in which they're made in I mean we can look at 25th Hour that way certainly and I think people are going to look back at Black Klansmen and really get a sense of where we were 
in in history and uh that that's reinforced certainly by the ending it was right before things got really much better right that's what they'll say right <laughs> this, this is the turning point well i mean they, they did that that same group did kind of fizzle out then they had a pretty crappy yeah. uh, second year rally i guess so yeah. we can we can say that that happened at least sure all right yeah. thanks my optimistic yeah, except for that guy who looked like <laughs> and, a, and, now, and now their their biggest moment is preserved in this film for yeah. forever oh <laughs> all right before we get too depressed uh, that wraps up <laughs> feedback for this episode we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 love those voicemails or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in The Old Man and the Gun, which may or may not be the Sundance Kid's last ride. Look for that next Tuesday. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be riding through some stunning day-for-night shots of the Old West, hoping those guys don't catch up with us. Raindrops are falling on my head But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red Crying's not for me 